Hello, femme fatales and clang-clanging trolleys and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host... Michael Hall. And our guest today uh, is the film critic for the Los Angeles Times and NPR's Fresh Air. Uh, He was previously chief film critic at Variety. He's the author of the book Filmcraft Editing, and he serves as both the chair of the National Society of Film Critics and secretary of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Uh, And on top of all of that is really probably just the the pun master general of uh, Twitter. Folks, please join us in welcoming... Uh, you know what? Just one of the best in the game and a really wonderful guy to boot. Uh, Justin Chang. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Hello, Jason and Mike. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's well, it's a long time coming. We've been trying to do it for a minute because I knew we wanted to have you on. But you're you're a busy guy, as you as as anyone who just heard the the bio could hear. Um, but I knew you'd have some good stuff to tell us about and uh, and some some insights to bring us. So let's let's get right to it. What year, Justin Chang, did you choose to talk about and why? I chose 1944. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. And it's really nothing more than looking over the years. These were some of my favorite movies uh, mm. over the past I don't know when I, I was probably in junior high, high school when I saw the, the first of the movies that we're going to, one of the ones that we're going to talk about. And yeah. so they were just a huge part of my um, falling in love with film. And uh, there were a bunch of them clustered, you know, it, I mean, there was, you know, there was a 41 cluster, there was a 43 cluster, and then there's, but 44 really um, scratches a lot of itches. So, Yeah. Well, tell me about that. Like, walk me back to, you know, little junior high, Justin, and, you know, discovering this era of movies, your 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 sort of classic Hollywood education, which is always something I'm I'm uh, curious about for guests who are, you know, s- significantly younger than the years that they're here to talk about. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's funny because my I credit my dad with a lot of my movie love. He was a, such a fan of old Hollywood and we watched a lot of mm. movies together and he used to oh God, rattle off the names of old movie stars in his you know, somewhat thick Chinese accent, um, which was very uh, endearing and, and, some, um, and also confusing because I had to figure out who he was talking about. Um, but he, I remember watching a lot of these with him, like, like Laura and like Double Indemnity and a lot of crime movies. We also, mm-hmm. not necessarily from this year, but we watched a lot of Hitchcock together and just, it was just, there there's something about this era um the 40s in particular that were just um really um falling in love with it's funny i was reading a lot of mysteries at the time at the time too and i found that you know it was really interesting the degree to which murder mysteries classic detective fiction was such a such a rich fertile creative ground for filmmakers right Mm. and so whether it's james m kane um Vera Casperi, mm-hmm. um, just, um, and I was sort of, it's interesting. My, my interest was more kind of in the British school of mysteries, but then, you know, movies like, you know, novels, movies, Raymond Chandler, who, you know, was working in both, in both media kind of, it sure. opened me up to the, the, the hard boiled school, um, in, in a way. So yeah, everything just kind of evolved together. And I just sort of fell in love with that, 
the really, you know, the tough talking, fast talking, everything we associate with this era, this era of film noir in particular. But also, it's not just noir. It's, it's as, as we'll see from this, there was so much, there was so much going on in this year. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting to to attach to sort of connect so heartily with hard boiled stuff at that particular age, which is so much about feeling and presenting as cool and <laughs> everything about these guys and and these women is so tough and cool and seems sort of effortless and so i can totally see wanting to connect with that in some way yeah and you know it it, it so was not about like it's like the opposite of relatability right it's like of the, course it is of you course. know it's but it's like <laughs> and i don't even know if it went as far as like oh i wish i were as beautiful or as cool or as i don't even know if it was even right that i don't even know if we call it aspirational it's it was like you know some of this was just like this this movie could be taking the place on another planet but it yeah. was just but there was, but at the same time, as I as I think about it, there is something aspirational in that. Just oh my gosh, the the literacy of these movies, the, mm. just how you know it, it does hark. And and I know this is a little reductive, maybe, but it does hark back to a time when, oh god, yeah, to be in a place, even though there are some incredibly awful, sordid things happening in some of the movies sure. here. But it's like sure. oh, but it's so stylish. I mean, it's and yeah. I remember watching. I remember watching Laura in particular with a whole group of friends and um and it it was weird like what it felt really counter to what was going on in my high school at the time like what are we doing watching this old <laughs> black and white 1940s movie and it was yes. really great it was about bonding with a very small group of cinephiles where that was just that didn't even have to be explained it didn't have to be yeah. um you know apologized for we were just like there and that was that as much as anything in the movies themselves finding kind of a core and some of the, my friends that I I'm still in touch with them, you know, obviously have gone even further down the path of cinephilia than, than I was at the time. And probably then that, that they did because I became a movie critic, but, um, <laughs> but that was so, so important and informative for me. And, and my dad and my family were also in the background and super supportive of my, uh, of this. And we all, you know, we all loved watching them together. So. That's beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to jump in and see uh, this this top five uh, and a wonderful new um, format for ranking them. Uh, but before we do, Mike is going to fill us in on what was going on in a very eventful year outside the movie palace. Uh, here's headlines. 1944 brought to a fuller realization many of our purposes. Our leaders have met again and again to speak for us, the people. And at the end of this year, President Roosevelt spoke many of our hopes when he said, the tide of battle has turned slowly and inexorably. We pray that with victory will come a new day of peace on earth in which all nations of the earth will join together for all time. May that spirit live and grow throughout the world in all the years to come. Nineteen forty four is all. It's a good thing they were good movies, man. <laughs> it's all about being on the other side of World War Two, right? Uh, so it's all about people dying to fight fascism and imperialism, mm -hmm. which is not great, but it certainly feels better than nineteen thirty nine when they were dying to like maybe not win, right? Right. right. So yeah. by forty four, everyone but Hitler knew the Germans were going to lose, uh, and the Japanese were quickly running out of gas. 
like literal gas Mm -hmm. to power the machines of war. So things weren't looking great for them either. Uh, There was still it still was not really clear sort of where Germany was in terms of their development of the nuclear bomb. Uh, Lots of that sort of we're we're in the midst of the Oppenheimer marketing season as we record this. So there's lots of that, like, it's it's the most important thing anybody's ever done in the history of yes. humanity, and we have to hurry the fuck up, you yeah, know, and yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah. we're in that, we're deep in that era. Yeah. Uh, turns out they hadn't actually made any progress since, like, 38, and we could have all calmed down, but nobody knew that. Uh, Then most of the news is about battles that were happening. Uh, We're not going to get into any of that shit because this is not the history channel Uh, in March. It's also just like it's it just becomes repetitive and depressing. And it's just like it gets hard. And also there's a billion ways to learn about it other than listening to me drone on. (laughs) In sound and picture, we bring you the awe inspiring scenes of Mount Vesuvius in eruption. Newsreel and RAF film unit cameras record the volcanic outburst. Flying around the crater, our cameraman sees the deadly stream of molten lava starting on its downward path with enormous cumulus clouds of hydrangea-colored smoke billowing upwards. In March, Mount Vesuvius erupted, killing 26 as if Italy didn't have enough fucking problems at that point in their time. Right. In April, Rudolf Verba and Alfred Wetzler escaped from Auschwitz and created the Verba-Wetzler Report, detailing what was going on there. It was an important first step in letting the world know the details. Um, It's one of those things that, like, in hindsight, it became much more important. Yeah. Then it was sort of realized at the time. I mostly like the story because it's about two guys that escaped from Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah. Tip, so that's great. Tip of the hat to that. They could have just spent the rest of their life in the fucking bar. Yeah. I would have been like, <laughs> buy that guy Wouldn't a beer, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Also in April, the so-called philosopher of fascism, Giovanni Gentile, was shot several times by communists. And you know what? Good for him. Yeah, big, big round Fuck of applause for, uh, for the Grim Reaper on that one, everybody. In June, Hans Asperger published his paper on Asperger syndrome and introduced the world to a new way to understand some of our neighbors. There we go. Yeah. Also in June, we were decoding Germans, uh, Germany's Enigma messages in almost real time. If you don't know anything about the Enigma machine, look that shit up. It's a very cool story. There has to be a movie about this. And if not, maybe it'll be Christopher Nolan's next project. There is a movie. It came out uh, in the U.S. in 2002 called Enigma. Directed by uh, by friend of the show, I think it's fair to say Michael Apted with um, Kate Winslet and Saffron Burroughs and uh, Jeremy Northam and several other very British people. Yeah, <laughs> it's appropriate to have British people in this movie. I it's, mean, yeah. it's about British people. It is. In the early dawn of D-Day, June 6, 1944, the largest battle armada in history heads across 80 miles of rough channel water from England to the northern coast of France. Barrage balloons and a massive concentration of air and surface guns protect the 4,000 warships, transports, barges, craft of every kind in the invasion convoy. Also in June was a little uh, a little event known as D-Day. A couple of famous movies about that as well. That's a character in Animal House. That's what I know about D-Day. <laughs> there you go. Also in June, despite all of the incredible fuckery going on all over the globe, the U.S. still found time to be psychotically racist when South Carolina executed George Stinney Jr. Mm-hmm. He was 14 years old. He was tried, convicted, sentenced, and executed in less than a month for the murder of two little girls. Jesus. He is, to this day, the youngest person executed in the United States. His conviction was overturned later, obviously, and it was all bullshit, but it was too late. I see. 
maybe uh maybe the state shouldn't be killing people in in, in that uh, in that fashion i'm just gonna throw that out that's my hot take for the episode Jim Crow did not care about World War II. Uh, in July, First Lieutenant Jackie Robinson was arrested and later court-martialed because he didn't want to ride in the back of a segregated army bus. Yes, that Jackie okay. Robinson. <laughs> Shout out question. to that Jackie Robinson. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in August, the Allies took Paris, so that's good. Yep. Also Ooh. in August was the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, which happened in Illinois. And that doesn't sound like a thing that happened in Illinois, but there were mysterious gas attacks in Mattoon, Illinois, that to this day are unsolved. The story has not been relevant to anyone in <laughs> almost 80 years, but it's so fucking weird. People are still talking about it. All so right. uh, check out the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can't, I just fucking can't with the rest of this year. Do you want to hear about Anne Frank being captured no. or the 800 Romani children who were systematically murdered at Auschwitz in October? No. Like, this is why we hate fascists and celebrate their deaths, right? Like, they would offer me the same respect and nothing more, so. We learned some time ago that Mr. Roosevelt was re-elected for a fourth term. These are the first pictures which show us how it was done. Why it was done was because the people at home and the men overseas wanted the president to finish the terrific job he's been doing so well. In November, Franklin Roosevelt beat Thomas Dewey to win his fourth presidential term, and we haven't done that again since. But uh, but Dewey went on to beat Truman, right? I remember when they have him hold, <laughs> holding up the newspaper. I remember that. Uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right, fuck the news. Let's talk about babies. Let's go. Robert Lee Minor was born in 1944, and you might not recognize the name, but he was a stuntman who doubled for Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, Bernie Mac, Carl Weathers, John Amos, and many other large wow. black men. So you've definitely seen Robert Lee Minor's movies. Shout out to Robert Shout Lee Minor. Out. Robert Lee Minor. Jimmy Page, Smokin' Joe Frazier was born in 44, Rutger Hauer, Mm -hmm. The Queen, Angela Davis, Jerry Sandusky, who, like, if you look at him on Wikipedia, the first thing it says is American Child Molester. (laughs) First thing right there. Yeah. Try to live your life in a way you don't get remembered like Jerry Sandusky, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Alice Walker was born in 44. Okay. Stalker Channing, friend of the show, Jonathan Demme. Mm-hmm. Bobby Womack, Dennis Farina, okay, there's, all born in 44. Yeah, that's going to be the dream blunt rotation for this one. Stockard Channing, Jonathan Demi, Bobby Womack, and Dennis Farina. I, you know, or actually, you know what? I just want to like get hammered with Dennis Farina. That's what I want. <laughs> that's a... And any collection of other people other than Jerry Sandusky. There we go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fuck that guy. He's drinking alone. <laughs> Guitar player Johnny Winter, uh, Mary Wilson from The Supremes, born in 44. Ronald Lee Ermey, you know who that is? You know who Ronald Lee Ermey is? No. What is your major malfunction, Kyle? You did the change the uh, initial for the name trick again, Mike. I'm I'm learning. Hey, there you go. Diana Ross was born in 44. John Milius, Charlie Tuna, Bernie Worrell from P-Funk, George Lucas, Danny Trejo, Joe Cocker, Wow. Patty LaBelle. Yeah, Danny Trejo is almost 80 years old and could probably still beat up <laughs> everyone. Most people. All of us at the same yeah, time. All of us at least. Uh, Frank Oz, Gladys Knight, artist and designer Rick Griffin, Gary Busey, Sam Elliott, Barry White. Basically, fucking to R&B was born in 44. Yes, it was. Like the kind of R&B you can fuck to. Yeah. Like if you, this list has got, yeah, yeah, okay. Also, The King, Peter Tosh, Kinky Friedman, Danny DeVito, Lorne Michaels, wow. Harold Ramis. And finally, American Indian movement activist Leonard Peltier, one of the long, one of America's longest serving political prisoners, was born in 44 right. and um, should not have been treated the way he has been. Correct. 
finally in sports, there there really wasn't much in the way of sports because people were literally fighting a world war for the survival of humanity. Sure. So there's not a whole lot to talk about. There was a Negro League World Series. The Homestead Grays beat the Birmingham Black Barons four games to one. There's a really good new documentary. I don't know how new it'll be by the time it airs, but Sam Pollard just did a, a new documentary called The League, um, which is about the, the, the Negro League, uh, and it's terrific. Uh, it's worth checking out. Okay. Bo Jack beat Bob Montgomery in the war bonds fight, and nobody remembers either of them now. There were literally no first-class cricket matches in England, Australia, or South Africa. Lord have mercy. Thank God. Thank God for that. No tour to France, no Giro to Italia. They didn't even play the U.S. Open. It's not like the war was happening in fucking Georgia. But no U.S. Open. Anyway, the Cheltenham Gold Cup was canceled. Thanks, Adolf. Uh-huh. The Olympics were canceled. Yeah. The only thing to report was Mildred Ella Babe Didrikson Zaharias, an American golfer on the Ladies Professional Golf Association Tour who won gold medals in track and field at the 32 Olympics before going on to win 10, 10 LPGA major championships. All right. If you look at pictures of Mildred... There's a chance somebody in a MAGA hat would want to check her pants before letting her on the field these days. She's got some broad shoulders, but she was an absolute athletic god before women were really encouraged to be that. And I'm glad she managed to get something nice for herself out of this fucked up year. Like, she's like, she does look kind of mannish, but like, she's got on like that 40s, like weird sort of like super bright red makeup. And she just beats the shit out of everybody. (laughs) She could also probably beat us all up at the same time. Uh, that's headlines. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Justin, you ready to do a top five? I'm ready. All right. So we uh, we always have a you know a conversation with the guests before we roll about how they want to do the top five. Some do a simple ranking. Some do a random. Some do it thematically. We've had chronological. We've done alphabetical. Uh, Justin threw a new one at us, and we want to mark that accordingly. Justin, how <laughs> is this? Five favorite films of 1944 organized. So these films are ranked from Mm -hmm. least quotable to most quotable. And (laughs) I view quotability as a value neutral thing. I, in fact, the one I'm going to start with is technically, I guess, in my opinion, maybe has the least least memorable dialogue, but it might be my favorite movie of the bunch. So make a value. But yeah, sure. So, and that- but it's a it's a it's a solid organizing principle. So, <laughs> it, with with that in mind, Justin Chang, what is your number five movie for 1944? My number five is Meet Me in St. Louis. Meet Me in St. Louis is the tender, romantic story of the most popular young beauty of the early 1900s, of her crush on the boy next door, of her lovable, yet at times humorous family. St. Louis, St. Louis. I know it's funny because the song is <laughs> Meet Me in St. Louis, Louis, but I, I, gosh, I, I know people say St. Louis. I, I, they say both ways. Um, uh, but this is um this is one of my favorite movies ever um and it's it's on my sight and sound list and uh it's vincent minnelli's vincent minnelli's um great great musical starring judy garland um, among others and uh so when uh, did you first see this one how long has this one been a part of your life i saw this in freshman year at usc university of southern california 
in a film mm-hmm. class, an intro to cinema film class. And I saw this on a double bill with Thomas Vinterberg's The Celebration. That So it's like <laughs> classic Hollywood, you know, uh, you know, Minnelli and Dogma oh, 95. It was it was pretty. No, it was my professor, Drew Casper, who was a legend at USC. Wow. Of kind of um, counter programming, I guess, but also very, yeah. much, very much the family <laughs> drama two ways. And, yeah, yeah, sure. and it was sort <laughs> sure. of I, I believe it two was vibes. Like, it was very much kind of like you know the most uh, expressive hollywood formalism versus you know the the grunge yeah. at the time the kind of the grungiest of digital um you know dogmatism i guess um, so mm-hmm. but it two great movies you know um yeah but it was yeah definitely but you know um so yeah and i just remember watching that you know crackling print in the north cinema theater at usc and uh, and it wasn't even in the best condition but it, it just was one of the most exquisitely beautiful things i'd ever seen it just and it's still yeah. i don't think i've ever recaptured i haven't seen it on the big big screen since but um minnelli's use of color in that i mean just the red of of judy garland's coat in that um mm-hmm. absolutely wrenching um winter climax um near the end of the movie uh it's just I images from that film just pop into my mind with um, great frequency. Is there I mean, are you in general a because because people get very emotional in both directions about musicals? You know, there are people who 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 love them with all of their heart. And there are people who just, you know, who love movies who just cannot lock in on them, who just yeah. like, you know, it's too it's too stylized. It's too unrealistic. It's too much. Where, what is your sort of general, where do you fall generally on, on the movie musical? Yeah. I mean, I love musicals. Um, I, I, I understand. I don't know if I understand. I, I <laughs> people who don't, I, I, I guess I'm okay with them, but, uh, but it's, <laughs> I don't understand it. I mean, and it's funny. I don't have the most coherent, methodology for like what kinds of musicals i love i mean it's ver- the sure. more the more organic integrated kind versus the you know I, and i i um so something like mimi and st louis which i understand is you know it was a synthesis of songs that were kind of you know put put together and it was you know obviously um it, it's 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 not as if the, the some you know an, an adaptation of a of a stage piece or some some pre-existing book um and there's right there's um and it's largely you know it, it plays like you know family drama melodrama and and the music is sort of just there to sort of um it, it's it's you know it's the sisters you know playing the piano it's like music is sort of just naturally embedded right it is sort of the mm-hmm. lifeblood of this family and so it's not so much the i guess ultra stylized you know stop everything um and 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 yet at the same time it's it's a it's a wonderfully stylized movie. I mean, there, and that's kind of the glory of it. So, um, so I was very much, you know, loved musicals when I saw this, but had not seen this one until, until college. And, um, and um, it's very funny because, uh, you know, like a lot of people, the sound of music was something I grew up with. And so the very first movie Mm -hmm. I sort of fell in love and watched repeatedly was, was a musical. And it's interesting to kind of put this next to it because I think that, I mean, I still, you know, part of me still loves the sound of music, but you know, Meet Me in St. Louis is, you know, also when you think about a movie about a family and there mm-hmm. is something um, and, and kind of what makes this one, I think a great work of art and, and the greater work of art is um, that there's just this, 
even though it's it's a largely happy movie and there's a happy ending to it and they don't leave their hometown and they stay and it's you know early 1900s and they stay and they go to the world's fair and everything there is just this darkness this melancholy to it that um, so even though nothing overtly bad happens there it's right. just this this delicacy this gossamer delicacy of feeling that Minnelli was able to accomplish that um that uh, you know it's like you feel the heartache underneath you feel like just kind of how um how sort of fleeting life is and how precious these moments are and how how quickly it could all go in the other direction i don't know there's just this this incredible sense of vulnerability i feel when i watch this even yeah. though certainly when you put on this list um this is the happiest and the, the least objectionable in terms of like sto- <laughs> narrative <laughs> events story outcomes yes. you know um just it's it's a happy movie i mean it's it's an absolute yeah. joy you know yeah well said well said all right then so what is your number four movie in your list of great quotable movies of 1944 <laughs> yeah number four is hail the conquering hero don't you understand that this is all based on lies what lies you put on the wrong blouse when the train come into the station that could happen to the anybody lies they're telling out front who's telling lies out front Ooh. every one of those boys is telling the truth except they change the names a little so as not to give out military information lies anyway those ain't lies those are campaign promises they expect them directed and written by Preston Sturges. Yes, which was I, an anomaly at the time. Like, it's hard to make people who 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 don't uh, really know the period understand what a rarity that was to be a writer slash director um, in this period. Yeah, and I think that Sturges had, you know, obviously distinguished himself as, as a great writer, a great comic writer, but mm-hmm. was un, 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 dissatisfied with... Um, how his work was being watching directed. these hacks ruin his scripts and he wanted to and he so he and now we we think nothing of it and um right in fact we sometimes uh i guess now it's the other way when when a director who hasn't written the work as well we sort of we almost look askance at the oh well you know but now it's like <laughs> but it's funny how stir you know yeah it's he was um he really broke ground in that way and this is of course and we'll talk more about this later but this is one of two great movies he had out that you're the other being or no there there were there are three right there are a lot yeah. just a very prolific had, period <laughs> for him he was it was a real da- mad dash of great stuff for him in the in the early 1940s and yeah he he i think you were right initially he put out two great movies in 1944 <laughs> and then another one that's like not quite so celebrated anymore which we can talk about as well for sure um but but yeah this was you know there were i because I, I did look into the timeline here and it's like um some of this was just a matter of like things that were that had been that been in the can for a while um the the other great movie was the miracle of morgan's creek um yes. which is just fabulous and funny and great Wonderful. um that one they, they they unsurprisingly if you know the plot of that film had some trouble with the censors on that one and so they had to yes. they were going back and forth with cuts and they had to do a bit of reshooting and so forth. Uh, so it had been shot in 1942 and early 43, uh, and then was withheld from distribution because there was sort of a backlog of unreleased films, which also included Sturge's other 1944 movie, which was the great moment. Um, and so they all ended up coming out in 44 miracle came out in January and it was paramount's highest grossing film of the year. Hail the conquering hero, which we're talking about now was released on August 4th 1944 and then the great moment came out 
on August 24th of 1944. So we gave about 20 days later, uh, a, a, a really, really busy period. So, uh, so what then it, to you is, is so especially um, noteworthy about hail the conquering hero uh, at the end of this sort of run of great movies, but also among even this really incredible output of this single year. Yeah. It feels in some ways like quintessential Sturges in the, the sort of small town satire that where he mm-hmm. is able to poke at the foibles in, in a very affectionate, but, but also pretty ruthless way. Yeah. Um, very, very attentive to individuals, but also a sense of just collective gullibility, foolishness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Eddie Bracken and William Demarest, who are a great pair. And they were also, they also star in Miracle of Morgan's Creek. And here Bracken, who is just so great as this yeah. kind of, um, you know, a guy who just, um, I've never seen just the, the snowball effect of like, of white lies, one stacked on top of the other. That's kind of yes. you know, this, this, as these, these lies snowball because, and he's just trying to do the right thing. He's this military, you know, at, you know, he tried off for the Marines was not, you know, was not able to, to serve his country because of hay fever, which, which is very funny in itself and <laughs> chronic hay fever. And he, ru- and he runs into these uh, Marines who are on leave and they're so touched by his story that they conspire to send him home a hero for the, at least for the sake of his, his dear mother. Um, and it just, from there he goes home and he is received, he ends up running for mayor uh, very much against his wishes. And <laughs> it's just, it's just marvelous the way, and it is so yeah. moment to moment convincing despite being completely outlandish at the same time. Yes. And yes. it's just, um, and, and Bracken is just so great at embodying somebody who is trying to do the right thing and ev- and yet every foot it's like quicksand. This this kind of and, 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 and yet and and yet the, the great punchline is he does end the movie a hero of sorts because he tells the truth. Anyway, uh, spoiler alert: he tells the truth. Um, uh. But you know, it's and it's just wonderful. And it's funny. To, it's funny to call a Sturges movie like the only fourth most quotable movie of 1944 or whatever is on my list. But that's I think that speaks to he's he's a wonderful writer. You know, and and the way his 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 dialogue builds and builds. It's not necessarily, you know, one-liners coming at you every which way. It's just, but there is there is a, such a that just this distinctive screwbally rhythm to the way mm-hmm. his characters talk. And I found my, I was rewatching this again, and I was just I, I really was laughing my ass off at just you know some of the just you know when when he's talking to the woman that he's in love with and she's still in love with him, yeah. but they can't bear to tell each other the truth of how how they feel. And it's just this it's like it's very heartfelt and it's ridiculous too but just these cascading rhythms to the way they're talking mm-hmm. so i don't by again by saying uh fourth most quotable i am i am not sliding the screenplay how could i it's preston fucking sturges so yeah yes, <laughs> yes. yeah no i'm stiff competition this year <laughs> yes it does no i mean you're right the the, the and and he was such a, a a gifted screenwriter that you're the 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 sort of just the struck the scaffolding of the screenplay yeah. is so immaculate that that it can build and build with this sort of internal logic that makes sense even though it's insane um and then <laughs> the, the thing that it, that is also i think really worth noting too when you're talking about the screwball rhythm a huge part of that is that as you mentioned by this point sort of at the end of this run of movies this stock company was so well established and was so 
proficient in speaking Sturges yep. that it's almost like, you know, like the Royal Shakespeare uh, company or something like they're so used to the rhythm of this particular dialogue that they are able to speak it to each other with such fluency. Uh, it's really it's it is it's it's beautifully constructed and also funny as shit. It really is completely. It's like yep. watching a, a beautifully tooled machine that nonetheless has so much kind of humanity it doesn't feel like it's been you know airbrushed into oblivion it's there's 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 a lot of it's it's wonderful absolutely yeah <laughs> yes sir all right then justin chang what is your number three movie for 1944 my number three is laura you have rarely met a girl like laura few women have been so beautiful so exotic so dangerous to know you're Laura Hunt, aren't you? Yes. I'm Shelby Carpenter. Want to dance? I'm not alone. Oh, you poor girl. I bet he still does the polka. Yes. Betsy Ross taught it to me. It was as natural for Laura to be picked out from among thousands of alluring girls as it was for her to be surrounded by luxury, mystery, and scheming men. Every woman will feel that when it comes to men, Laura gets by with murder. Every man will feel that when it comes to murder, it couldn't involve a more enticing girl. Otto Preminger's um, wonderful detective story. Um, I'm going to read this. Is some interesting credits because I, I wrote this down. Written by Jay Drattler, Samuel Hoffenstein, Hoffenstein, Elizabeth Reinhardt, and Ring Lardner Jr. Based on a novel by Vera Caspery. Mm-hmm. My first impression of this movie, whenever I think about it, is Clifton Webb as Waldo Lidecker, who's narrating the story. Um, and and the movie has one of the great opening lines. I will never forget the weekend Laura died. And it's it just immediately draws you in. But it's also yeah. what the the great there's just so many great scenes, especially in the flashbacks when they are first you know, um, when he's first telling you how he how he met and, and fell in love with Laura, because everyone in this movie falls in love with Laura, played by the impossibly beautiful yes. Gene Tierney. And yes. Clifton Webb just rattles off a series of lines that, you know, things like, I write with a goose quill dipped in venom. And in my case, <laughs> self-absorption is completely justified. I have never discovered any other subject so worthy of my attention. And it's really funny because, you know, he's, he's a journalist. He's a columnist. and He sure he, is. He kind of articulates sort of in, in some ways um, the <laughs> my ideal ethos of, of a critic. You know, it's like it's just, yes. it's just that, yeah. you know, writing with a goose quill dipped in venom. I mean, that is what we all aspire to, right? Um, yes. and, and then he took over directing this movie, which he was really just producing mm-hmm. um, from Ruben Mamoulian. And I think you see just some of the the stylishness of the direction, but also just there's this creeping perversity to the movie where it's like, you know, because it's about Dana Andrews as, as the police detective who, who falls in love with a dead woman. And so there's this necrophiliac element to the movie, not in a, Mm -hmm. not in a uh, material sense, perhaps, but very much in a spiritual sense and an emotional psychological one. And it's such a, I think, you know, and again, when I was first watching this movie, I think I just responded to it on level, ooh, here's a really clever, naughty, enjoyable right. mystery. And so I was a little unprepared for just the different layers of um, of obsession, of the way every character in this movie is 
kind of horrible in in some mm-hmm. really really compelling <laughs> way. Yep. And I think that's something Preminger brought to the material. Um, I was reading something about how Vincent Price, who plays um, you know Laura's fiance Shelby Carpenter, and and he said he attributed this to Preminger, where basically that what he added was this he gave each of the characters an underlying sense of evil. Like nobody in this mm. movie is normal. It's and right. That's, and, right. And I think that really comes through in a way that even, even if you accept the conventions of kind of a mystery where yes, you know, circle of suspects and everyone's, everyone's horrible, but even still the way they all regard Laura, who is this exalted, you know, uh, figure, but um, by the end you realize she brings about, um, she also just awakens this, this rage within them um, that is really um, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's something this movie. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. And the, the, so this was my first time watch for this episode. I'd never seen Lloyd been on the watch list forever. Uh, so I was glad to finally have an excuse to check it out. It is. It's remarkable. The thing that's incredible. I think about Gene Tierney is when you watch this, like in conjunction with uh, leave to heaven, yes. which came out the, the following year to see this range of of characterization and performance Absolutely. Um, within basically the same genre. They're both basically, you know, noir. Now one is, you know, a sunshine noir and one is a more traditional one, but, uh, but she's terrific. Clifton Webb is incredible. Uh, I think Dana Andrews is doing a lot of really interesting underplaying through the movie um, really in, in a, in a sort of contemporary kind of way. Um, and I honestly, I also just thought it was a really terrific mystery, like knowing nothing about it. Um, when when what happens with her character about halfway through happens, I was literally mouth agape. Like oh. I wasn't, did not and see that coming. Also, just the way that moment, which I won't give away, is played. The way it's played. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, you think about it, there are 50 different ways you could shoot that probably. But it's just, and the first time without giving it away, it's like you're thinking, oh, is this is this really happening? Kind of a thing, and right, and no, it's but the way, and I think the way that just happens at the at the halfway point, it completely turns the movie on its head. Um, I also just really want to shout out um, the great uh, Dame Judith Anderson, um, who yes, uh, very famous for Rebecca, which is an interesting movie to hold up to this one. Um, you know, sort mm. of as far as dead women f- mm-hmm. first name titles, you know, but also just uh, an, an obsession and. Um, she's wonderful in this and i also just remember thinking thinking that it's funny dana andrews gene tierney you know as a couple finding i remember being struck by this as as a kid when i first saw this movie how oh what we think of as historically a man's name is is the is the actress's name and what we think of as as, as a woman's name is 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 the male lead actor's name and i don't even know what to make of that it's just huh okay but also (laughs) looking at them and they were like i remember seeing this movie thinking these were just two of the most beautiful people maybe the two most beautiful i'd seen i mean as a couple and even mm-hmm. though there is this perverse undercurrent to their relationship um but i and especially i i love dana andrews in this as well and so much so, what you were saying jason about there's that little thing where um where he's <laughs> let's just say he, Oh God, I can't even talk about it without giving away the twist. I won't give away the twist or, or say too much more about it, but he does these little subtle things, little subtle smiles to kind of break through that very hard mm-hmm. boiled veneer. Mm-hmm. And he's like playing with this kid's toy throughout while all these very mm-hmm. tense fraught things are happening, but it just, because it steadies him, so it keeps me calm. And it's just, no, he's, yeah. uh, 
there was definitely no it was like that actually you, you did i did kind of want to be be like be like him at, <laughs> watching this it's like yeah I mean, <laughs> except for the except for the creepy necrophilia part um other of course that, of yes, course totally <laughs> all right justin what is your number two movie for 19 and 44 oh my god my number two is to have and have not ernest hemingway soldier of fortune who can always be found where adventure beckons now takes you to the danger zone of the mid-atlantic where strange ships slip through the fog with even stranger cargoes where every man has a price and every woman a past. Where all barriers are down and the only law is the law of the Caribbean. This is Howard Hawks' adaptation of um, the novel by Ernest Hemingway, um, yep. written by Jules Firthman and William Faulkner. Um, mm-hmm. Quite a formidable... I love that. Just like William know. Faulkner, just like... just Yeah. Just... Working on the script, just Faulkner. Just, I just remember just, thinking, like, this movie cannot be that good. <laughs> it can't be as good as this list mm-hmm. suggests it's gonna be, mm-hmm. and then it is. Yeah, and you're like, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> it's like, and I mean, just yeah, and I think this kind of great, astonishing meeting of many great writerly minds, um, Faulkner mm-hmm. and Hemingway, especially, and. And, and yeah, it's funny. I mean, this movie is often spoken of in the same breath as Casablanca and was sort of, you know, in a mm-hmm. way, Hawks's, uh, you know, version of Answer to, Rejoinder to, Casablanca movie. He was, Answer record. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Diss track. Diss track. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. And he was originally, of course, going to direct Casablanca at one point. Um, but, and if I'm honest, I... I like to have have not better, uh, or at least it's just Same. more. It's yeah, it's 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 also Same. just the movie I've seen more often, which I know mm-hmm. uh, people for whom Casablanca is the movie I can understand would find that right. odd, but um, but you know, it's just you know, it's looser, it's shaggier, it's it's, it's got a, a really specific Hawks hangout energy to absolutely. it. In in, um, in kind and, of a very pure form too, and it's very mm-hmm. no, go on, Jason. Sorry, I cut you off. Yeah. No, no, yeah. you're right. You're right. Uh, and uh, and also, you know, as great as him and Bergman are together, like, oh, God. I'm not <laughs> I'm not breaking news here, but Jesus, these two are so hot together. Obviously, it had real life ramifications um, how how incredibly sexy they are uh, on screen together. It's 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 still sort of astonishing. It, it's it, it this movie does not feel as if I mean, it's a cliche to say this has not aged a day this really hasn't though including yeah. that just incandescent chemistry that they have and this was lauren bacall's extraordinary debut and she was hawks's discovery and yeah. um and you know the it's just fascinating just to read about this i mean the production of it too and it, it kind of echoed casablanca in the sense of like you know what is the story about Casablanca where like it's you know it was being written as it was you yeah know, all like, hands all, on deck all, yeah. going along and and therefore was shot you know and and to have and have not was you know in a similar way you know had to be shot in sequence because you know Faulkner was revising the story which was massively transplanted from Hemingway's right. 1930s Key West Cuba story and transplanted to um, to Martinique, right. the Nazi-held French colony of Martinique, um, and bringing elements of the French resistance and Vichy and all of that, and so and it's just amazing the level of crap. I mean, that's that's Hawks, who's why he was such a great director, but also uh, just an incredible 
assembly of talent, new talent and old old talent. And, you know, Bogart and Bacall just for the their, you know, union on screen and off screen, obviously for the ages. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think just um and I was really yeah, the, the, speaking, going back to the just the, the level of the dialogue, it's funny. I mean, you don't yes. always think of this as a, a super written movie, but of course it is. And there's, you know, there are just so many immortal lines from this that um, yeah. you don't know how to whistle. Yeah. You know how to whistle, don't you? You put your lips together and blow and just all, yeah. you know, these scenes of, you know, it's, it's even better when you help. You know, it's just these things that were sort of <laughs> almost like improvised or just come up with on the fly and um, masterful. Yeah. And, I will tell you, there's always, I think there's a scene from every movie that I love. And for this one, it's Hoagie Carmichael at the piano. And, you know, and and this movie also, you know, really brought him, you know, an enormously mm-hmm. successful musician, songwriter, and, and brought him into the public eye even in a, in a, in a greater way um, than he'd experienced before. And when he's sitting there and he's, he's playing Am I Blue and singing it, and he brings, you know, and, you know, brings Bacall around and they, they do this duet and she's got this, you know, of course this incredibly husky singing voice as well as Huggy's husky speaking voice. And yeah. they weren't, you know, you would think like, Oh, they weren't entirely sure even that they wanted to use her singing voice, but I'm glad they did because this duet, I think I've watched this duet like just a billion times. I don't know why. It's just, <laughs> I just love, and it's that, it's that hangout, it's that, that atmosphere. And, you know, yeah. it's, this is very pre, Nobody's died yet. Nothing's really happened, and it's just him setting the scene. But you just want to, you just want to live in a Howard Hawks movie. You know, it's you do. It's, it's funny too. Years later, I'd fall in love with a movie I maybe love even more than Tab and Have Not, which is Rio Bravo, which also has yeah. Walter Brennan in that. And you see a lot of the dynamics. I mean, of course, you know, you, we could uh, talk about just this this dynamic and uh, across so many of Hawks' movies. But it's about people banding together to do the right thing. And, um, and that it's, it's so, um, that thread of course runs throughout this movie. And as, as Bogie's character, you know, who was originally just very neutral, uh, very, very Switzerland, Mm -hmm. I'm not getting involved. And yet his friend (laughs) compels him, his love for this woman he's falling in love with compels him. And finally just decency compels him to, to take a side. And that's, um, and, um, and it, and it has a, a happy ending too and so in a way it's also, that. which also feels very very much hawks hawks's rebuttal to the idea that yeah. the world is just shit and you know and we all have to just swallow it and he's kind of like no which is like interesting <laughs> to make to like do that with something that starts with a hemingway yes. it's just like <laughs> right? this this should this this shit just goes on so many different yeah. dips i, I, yes, I, I yeah. have not read the hemingway novel but i do understand it ends very much it is Quite, nowhere near the yeah. you know it is <laughs> yes it's and i i shouldn't it, i wouldn't describe it as a happy <laughs> <No>. ending <laughs> it is no. not <laughs> All right, Justin. Well, I mean, if if the number two most quotable oh, movie is the one with you know how to whistle, Steve, then what on earth <laughs> could the number one movie in terms of quotability be for 19 and 44? Okay, there is obviously room for argument here. Some would think it's ridiculous to put to not put to have and have not at number one. But the one I did put at number one is Double Indemnity. I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. But always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. 
And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? Billy Wilder, James M. Cain, um, written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler. I mean, my God. So, um, <laughs> and I mean, it's novelists just making some money this year. They just they, they made some house payments this year. I mean, it's just, you know, you put, you know, you know how to whistle Steve next to, um, you know, how fast was I going off? So I'd say around. Oh, 90. my it's God. Just, and <laughs> is there a sexier dialogue scene in a like post code pre MPAA motion picture than the how fast were you going? I, like, holy shit. I, it's not coming to mind for me. And yeah. it's just, and, the, and from there, that's just the start. It just keeps right. going. And they do this whole, like, suppose you get, suppose I do this. Suppose, it's just, and the, the way it just builds and builds and yeah. builds. Um, and this, uh, God, I love this movie. This Double Indemnity was my favorite movie for a long time. Um, it's still up I there. I believe it. But it's, it was just, yeah. this was kind of the movie for me. And it just, um, it dovetailed with so many things. Um, very much a love for Barbara Stanwyck. Um, and yeah. speak, going back to Sturgis, you know, the Lady Eve was just, a, you know, was was just also something I, I saw and fell in love with at this time. And I was, I went from the lady Eve to this and I was like, Oh my God, she, wait, she can do that mm. and that and, and, and that. And, and mm-hmm. that was just, you know, uh, off to the races, Barbara Stanwyck wise from there. Um, and it's, um, but also, and again, a great, you know, crime story, um, mm-hmm. accurately told and with incredible hard boiled style as well. Um, but I am just, I, I know that this movie talking about yeah code postcode obviously really upset people and scandalized mm-hmm. people when it when it emerged mm-hmm. and it's funny I, I you try to put yourself back in the mindset then where it's just really you know you know perhaps say irredeemable people doing horrible things and um mm-hmm. and just and leaning into just the the darkness and the fatalism of that and now we we so accept this as convention but double indemnity really blew the door open i think for um for film noir as we know it i mean it was really it really did set some precedents i think in terms of how far into that darkness hollywood would go and um yeah yeah and it's at the template really i yeah. mean like to such an extent that we, you know when when we have the sort of neo-noir slash erotic thriller revival of the 1980s like you have body heat is basically yes. a, an uncredited remake of double indemnity like Absolutely. beat for beat um the thing that i do always think is fun that we that we've talked about on the show before is you know your sort of your your accidental sideways first exposure to things we've talked about movies where you know you saw something like parodied in a mel brooks movie or a, a right. zaz movie before you saw the real thing you read a you know a mad magazine spoof before you saw the real thing this one i had seen double indemnity first in its clips in dead men don't wear plaid um which are some of the funniest shit in dead men don't wear plaid because steve martin goes undercover in drag so like you know when 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 fred mcmurray is making out with barbara stanwick like you cut to the reverse and it's steve martin in a blonde wig um it's really uh, it's a hell of a way to first experience that movie but you know Again, as with all of these things, like that's part of the reason I saw Double Indemnity is at the end of Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, they have that great credit role where they show you who else appeared in the movie and where they came from. Um, Justin, uh, any? I'm sorry, anything else to do you wanted to add no. about Double Indemnity? 
before oh, we close it out? It's just um, I will just say that the la- uh, the closing line "I love you too" is also just one of I mean one of the great oh. kickers and spoken by Fred McMurray to Edward G. Robinson and um, those three the kind of just the psychological triangle that develops between McMurray Robinson and Stanwyck is just um, that is just endlessly fascinating to watch and um i find this movie deeply moving despite its incredibly dark dark heart and um it never never gets old never never ceases to work its magic on me no agreed agreed (laughs) all right justin thank you so much for that excellent top five and now a word from our sponsor Film lovers rejoice. The New York Film Festival returns September 29th through October 15th. Passes are on sale now, and not only do they give you access to new films from Todd Haynes, Sofia Coppola, Michael Mann, and more filmmakers from around the world. Curated by an excellent selection committee, including this week's guest, Mr. Justin Chang. Hey, but you also get tickets before they go on sale to the general public this September. So discover which festival pass is right for you so you can secure your seats to the year's best movies. Learn more at filmlink.org slash NYFF. That's NYFF, the New York Film Festival. Let's find out what films were winning trophies and making money in 1944. Here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah. Sell out with me tonight. The record company's only Oscar winners, Best Picture, Best Director to Leo McCary, Best Actor to Bing Crosby, Best Supporting Actor to Barry Fitzgerald, also won Best Film, Best Director, and Supporting Actor at the second annual Golden Globes. Holy granola, going my way. Justin? It's just called Going My Way. It's not called Holy Granola. No, it's not. It's just called Going My Way. That was just an expression of my enthusiasm. Don't don't go to IMDb looking for Holy Granola Going My Way. Justin, (laughs) uh, where do you land on on Leo McCary's Going My Way? I like it. Yes, exactly. I'm fine with it. You know, I I don't... I, I, I don't I, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or the other. Right. But I mean, I think it's Academy cool. voters certainly yes. did real, <laughs> real sweep on that one at the at, at the Oscars. But yeah, it's 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 totally lovely, uh, extremely watchable and um, no double indemnity. Mike, what else? Next up, Best Actress went to Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. No, it didn't. <laughs> sorry well done. i'm sorry everyone well all right what else what else <laughs> best supporting actress to ethel barrymore for none but the lonely heart i justin have you seen none but the I lonely have heart not i have me not. neither moving on all right some other significant award winners the golden globe for best actor went to alexander knox for wilson a woodrow wilson biography that i had never heard of before making Ugh, this i was list. afraid that's what that was yeah 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 once again you know things change in hollywood but one thing that never changes is an easy way to a statue is by playing a historical figure in a biopic we were recording this the day that the bob marley biopic trailer dropped uh, I, some some things change and some things stay the same. What else did uh, one significant awards, Mike? Do you know who uh, led the Whalers after Bob Marley passed away? <laughs> Tell me, Mike. They had a Japanese singer. They did. 
for years after Bob Marley Correct. passed away. Yes, they did. Yeah, look it up. Yep. That shit's amazing. Yep. Uh, uh, Golden Globe for Best Supporting Act. Talk about some big shoes, some big sandals to fill. <laughs> Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, Agnes Moorhead for Miss Parkington. I've not seen Miss Parkington either, but I'm fine with anyone giving Agnes Moorhead uh, any acting honor they would like. Here, here. Yep. Domestic box office top 10. Uh, number 10 was Bathing Beauty. Red Skelton and Esther Williams. An Esther Williams movie called Bathing Beauty? Get out of town. This is not one Top 10. I've seen. Yeah, not one I've seen, I'm afraid. Me neither. Is she bathing in like a, a like a dress that goes down to her ankle? No, no, no. She was the famous swimming <laughs> uh no, she yeah. had, you know, like a Yeah, you're right. It was probably sort of a, a Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Number 9, Frenchman's Creek. Uh have not seen. Nope. Number 8 to have and to have not. Hey, seen that one. Good picture. Yep. Number seven, Hollywood Canteen. That I think I have. I no. I no. I'm sorry. That was I, that was Diner was a remake. Of it that, was right? not. It was not. No. Uh, I I miss. I've seen Stage Door Canteen, which is basically the same movie. These like service comedy move or they're basically variety show movies that are just like that take place in the canteen where the sailors would go on leave, and they're just like stars doing cameos to show they they support the troops. Um. I haven't seen Hollywood Canteen. I've seen Stage Door Canteen because that's the one with Harpo Marx in it for 40 seconds. What else did well at the box office? Nice. Number six, a guy named Joe. Uh, I've never seen that one, but that was that was Spielberg's always was the remake of that, right? I think. Yep. Yes, it is. Okay. I'm I just backing you up because I'm your friend. Have <laughs> you have seen this one, I Justin? I have. It was a film school one, and I... I don't remember a ton of it beyond uh-huh. Spencer Tracy and other, yes, Spencer but, Tracy. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. usually pretty reliable. This. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Number five, the White Hills of Dover. <laughs> no idea. Never seen the White Hills mm-hmm. of Dover. Nope. I assume that's a war movie. Yeah. Number four, thirty seconds over Tokyo. Assume that's a war movie. Uh, also, more Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy was like box <laughs> office, uh, box office dynamite. In 1944, imagine an era where you could look like Spencer Tracy and you would be like big box office. I love it. Number three, since you went away. Okay. Little Shirley Temple vehicle. Oh, I see. All right. Oh, I think this is like growing up, like as she was becoming a, a young woman, Shirley Temple vehicle. And Claudette Colbert's in that one, too. And it turned out like she couldn't act. Turned like, out, kind of turned out when yes. she was a grown up, right? Kinda, Do I understand that correctly? Kind of turned out, yes. She, 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 yeah. she, she pursued other interests, and good for her, I say. <laughs> Copy that. Number two, meet me in St. Louis. Hey, hey, all right. Hey, all right. And number one was going my way. Man, everybody, not America had going my way fever in 1944, Mike. <laughs> And like so many other uh, huge box office and Oscar contenders of previous years, we watch it today and it's fine. All right. <laughs> Justin Chang, you ready to do a lightning round? I'm ready. All right. We know how it goes, everybody. Mike's going to put five minutes on the big clock. I'm going to rip through a bunch of 1944 titles. Justin, say your piece on each if you have piece to say, and if not, feel free to pass. Here we go. Uh, the aforementioned Preston Sturgis's Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Love it. Love it. Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Solid. 
Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace. Not really a fan. Yeah. Interesting. And why is that? I don't know. It's just I have I have Capra issues. I don't know. Um, it's just Ooh. and kind of in. I know it's just, this is not this is sort of atypical in a way, but I I don't I, I it's been a while, but I don't have the greatest memories of Arsenic I I I am a I'm a bit of a Capra apologist. I like this one, yeah. but it's a little manic. It's a little tryhard. It's a little sweaty. Yeah. Powell and Pressburger's A Canterbury Tale. Oh God, pass. Laurence Olivier's Henry V. Okay. <laughs> Vittorio De Sica's The Children Are Watching Us. Oh God, I've never seen this one. Ooh. Yeah. Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible, Part One. Pass. Fritz Lang friend of the show uh put out two pictures in the year of our lord 1944 ministry of fear and the woman in the window no 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 (laughs) walt disney's the three caballeros oh yeah that's fine (laughs) kid memories too yeah it's fine <laughs> Rene Claire's It Happened Tomorrow. Have not seen. No. The Curse of the Cat People. Oh, great movie. Yeah. Great movie. Love that one. One of the great sequels, I would yes. dare say. Yes. Valu. Perhaps. Oh, yes. Perhaps a better film than the original, I would dare say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Not seen. Maya Darren's At Land. Oh, God. No. <laughs> William Wel- the, the lightning round is so much harder when the movies are this old. William Wellman's <laughs> Buffalo Bill. Pass. Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly in Cover Girl. Oh, no. No, but I want to. No. <laughs> all right we're in the noir section of the lightning okay. round the great robert seod seod mac i never say his name right directed three movies in 1944 justin that's right phantom lady christmas holiday and the suspect pass 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 edward Demetrix murder my sweet oh i like that one william cameron menzies address unknown movie unknown (laughs) (laughs) to me (laughs) anthony mann's strangers in the night pass edgar g ulmer's bluebeard no i I know me neither but i want to see it (laughs) elizabeth taylor in national velvet oh yeah yeah i'm a fan of that (laughs) Fan of hers. John Wayne in The Fighting Seabees. No. Uh, How about a little universal horror? Have you seen The House of Frankenstein? Oh, God. Yes. I think I have this one. Yes. And? Very fond of it. It's been a while. But yes, there was a a time. Two mummy movies from Universal this year. The Mummy's Ghost and The Mummy's Curse. No. The Invisible Man's Revenge. Can't say that I have. (laughs) 
and finally, three of the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies were released oh, in 1944. Wow, yeah. The Pearl of Death, The Scarlet Claw, and Sherlock Holmes and the Spider Woman. I don't think I've seen those three. I've seen other Rath, but not, not from this year, no. Then what is your favorite of that series, Justin Chang? We'll end Probably on that. Probably is, I mean, is Hound of the Baskervilles too? Like, kind of obvious an answer. I don't know. No, because it's <laughs> it was it was early on. It's the best source material, it's, and it was the yeah, the. It's kind. Of I think probably also the one where they had like an actual budget. <laughs> As you could see from the prolificness here, they kind of turned into programmers later on. It's kind of hard to to go against that one. For, but yeah, yeah. But man, that was brutal. <laughs> you know what? When I was putting that list together, I was like, these are not a lot this of well-known no. movies. The top five are kind of the best of, of the year, but, but a, a noble effort. Uh, thank you, Justin. And now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us because that's what lets people know that we're here. Justin, where can people read your work and follow you on social media? Yeah, they can find my work at latimes.com or read me in print in the Los Angeles Times if you feel inclined. Hey, please hey. do. Um, you can hear me on Fresh Air uh, on NPR. And I am on Twitter at Justin C. Chang. Hanging in there on Twitter, are you? Uh, for, for now. <laughs> By now, maybe it's the next 24 hours. I don't know. It's who knows. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's there. I haven't, I haven't pulled out yet, but we'll see. Look, I still live in America, all right? <laughs> I have a responsibility to try to fix the things that we inflict upon the world. There we go. I don't know what you want me to say. Every election year, I have to argue with my wife about why we don't leave this godforsaken country. Right. And I'm like, because we have to vote. Yes. Exactly. Twitter, same thing. Uh, Only no voting. Right. Just complaining. I am Fun City Cinema on Instagram. Uh, Jason-Bailey on Twitter and Letterboxd. I haven't learned my Blue Sky handle yet. I'll get back to you on that. Uh, on Letterboxd, by the way, you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people follow you? I am at brainwashedlib on fuckelonmusk.com. <laughs> have you have you gotten you a spill account yet? Have you moved to spill yet? I don't know, you know what that is. A, uh, I don't know what that is. You don't know? There's a new black Twitter. It's called Spill. Good to know. Mm. Uh, yeah. And don't forget. They don't let me talk yet, but they let me read. <laughs> Don't forget, we are now on Substack, a very good year.substack.com, where paid subscribers get Mike and Justin bonus episodes, bonus writing, and much, much more. Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1944? My favorite movie of 1944 is called Zoya. It's a Russian film about a woman who was a resistance fighter uh, in the, the Soviet army who was fighting against the... Uh, Nazis and like I mean it's it's a Soviet movie that came out in 1944 like it's all propaganda <laughs> top to bottom there's no like artistic freedom there's nothing like that uh, but it's a fantastic film I've actually I watched it first after reading about it so I've never actually found one with really like rock solid um, subtitles 
So, like, you might sure. even argue I've never even really fully seen my favorite movie from 1944, but also it's <laughs> Soviet propaganda. It's basically filmed posters. It's not that hard to work out what they're talking about. Um, but there what's really amazing about the movie, it's it's the closest thing I've seen to to Passion of the Joan of Arc because it's this it's one particular oh, woman and she was a resistance fighter and she ends up being captured by the Nazis and she's tortured and she won't give up any of her friends and then they kill her. And so it's a bunch of like stern looking German dudes standing around being like, you're a bad woman. You're not supposed to woman the way you've been womaning. And then they kill her in the end, right. you know, and she gives passionate speeches and she really believes. And it also looks like it was filmed on like really old fucking film because they were trying to you know not die fighting the nazis that year so like it just it's it's to me like as a double bill with passion of joan of arc is it's is sort of the the best way to understand it um and it's just an amazing movie uh and it's just sort of also i think like a lot of the american films at that time um you know i mean we were they're super patriotic you know what I mean? They're by war bonds. They're all that kind of stuff. And this is like, yeah. no, we're going to die if you don't become a fucking cosmic spiritual superhero right now. Right. You know, there's just right. such a different sort of perspective and take on the war and, and sort of attitude about the way everything was going down. They're dealing with deprivation in a way that even we weren't, you know, it's just it's an incredible sure. movie and an absolutely phenomenal lead performance. Um for uh, even if you don't understand all the words how about you jason what's your favorite movie of 1944 here's the thing i was already feeling like kind of boy this is a real lightweight pick and then you picked the uh the russian uh (laughs) death march movie and so now i'm feeling uh like a real kind of uh souffle of a dude (laughs) over here but mine is uh, the Princess and the Pirate, which is a Bob Hope picture nice. from 1944. <laughs> well, we've talked. God, I mean, you know, God forbid you enjoy anything in your life, Jason <laughs> Bailey. <laughs> we've talked before on the show. It's, it comes up sometimes that, you know, I, I did really have this awakening a handful of years ago that Bob Hope, who I had just always known as this, you know, fat, unfunny old Republican from the 80s when I first encountered him on these terrible NBC specials, was had actually at one time been quite funny. Um, and these 1940s vehicles, like late 30s into 40s into around 52 or 3, uh, very few clunkers in him. He was banging out like three or four pictures a year and they're funny as shit. Um, he, he honed this persona that I could best describe as the horny coward. Um, <laughs> the whole movie is just kind That's of some about good writing, like, Jason Bailey. <laughs> yeah. Just like, they're all about him, like trying to get laid and not get in a fight. Um, and really the best of those I think are tend to be the sort of costume, uh, movies where you, you, you put that idea into, you know, uh, the, the, the classical French court or whatever. So you have all of the typical stuff, but they're also in like great costumes and they're on like fancy sets and it makes him being a horny coward seem even more incongruent and funny. The princess and the pirate is one of those. Um, where, you know, he's, he's sort of a a cowardly actor and he's stowing away on a pirate ship and there is a princess and she's played by Virginia Mayo, who's very hot and very funny. And the supporting cast on this one, like Walter Brennan, who was in To Have and Have Not is in The Princess and the Pirate. Uh, Oscar winner, Victor McLaughlin from all the John Ford movies is in this one. Like it's a stacked cast. It looks great. It was 
Oscar nominated for like the 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 art design. Um, and it's just really, really funny. So I heartily recommend The Princess and the Pirate. Excellent. All right. That's a, a great double build. Just watch your movie second or otherwise you'll kill yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> by the time the day is done. This is the 1944 version of the people who are double featuring Oppenheimer and Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Justin. Thank you both. It's been a joy. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Sweet and clear. It was a very 